Welcome to this episode of Double Jeopardy, the law and politics podcast with me, Ken MacDonald. I'm a former director of public prosecutions and a barrister practicing uh, from Matrix Chambers. And with me, Tim Owen. I'm also a barrister at Matrix specialising in public law, criminal law and human rights law. Well, like a lot of people, Tim and I have been thinking a great deal recently about miscarriages of justice, particularly provoked by the dreadful Andrew Malkinson case. And so uh, we thought it'd be a very good idea to have as our guest Edward Garnier, Lord Garnier KC, with us for this week's episode, because he's taken a close interest, not just in the Malkinson case, but in miscarriages of justice generally, and indeed chaired the recent Westminster Commission on Miscarriages of Justice, which we'll come to, no doubt, during the course of our conversation. Edward was born in Germany to a military family and then went, um, appropriately enough, I suppose, to Wellington College and after that to Oxford, where he studied modern history. He was called to the bar in 1976 and quickly became a specialist in libel law, taking silk in 1995. One of his better known cases was his representation of Edwina Curry after Peter O'Born, the uh, commentator, had described her as the vilest woman in Britain. Well, Edward won that case and got her a very handy £30,000 for her pains. He also represented John Major in the prorogation case. In, In 1992, Edward was elected Conservative MP for Harborough in Leicestershire. He was a member of the Home Affairs uh, Select Committee, uh, the PPS to various ministers. Uh, In 1997, he became, under William Hague's uh, leadership, shadow spokesman at what was then the Lord Chancellor's Department. In 1999, he became shadow attorney general and received some acclaim from the BBC in that role. They described his, uh, quote, thoughtful performance um, without excessive partisanship, which I think also marks Edward's standing in the in the House of Lords. Between 2010 and 2012, he was Solicitor General in the coalition government. Uh, in 2018, he became a life peer and he speaks in the Lords on many justice and rights issues. Thank you very much for joining us uh, today, Edward, and welcome to Double Jeopardy. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yes, thanks. Thanks very much, Edward. It's good, good to see you. Well, um, Edward, we normally start our conversations with our guests by asking them something about what brought them to the law, why they thought the law would be a good career and and, and how they, they embarked upon it. So so what was it that, when, when did you first become interested in the law as a as a career and what, and what interested you about it? I think I, I became interested in it by default. Uh, as you say, I, I read history at university and I saw a lot of my contemporaries uh, going off to work in the city and going off to become members of the accountancy profession or whatever it may be, or going into industry. And I didn't want to do any of those things. In fact, I didn't really want to go to work at all. <laughs> so I thought if I read for the bar for two years, that would give me time to think about it. And my father and mother were very kind and scrimped and saved to allow me to come to London to read for the bar. And in reading for the bar, I thought, well, actually, this is rather interesting. Not only that, it's quite fun, and there are a lot of nice people doing it. My problem was that I didn't really know many barristers, uh, and certainly my father as an ex-soldier, uh, and then when he got to uh, his mid-50s and retired, uh, went home and farmed, uh, he didn't really know any barristers either. So I said, what should I do? He said, well, you better ring up, uh, and he na- mentioned a, a great friend of his who been a solicitor. Uh, so I rang him up and he said, well, very nice to hear you, but I 
I can't offer you a pupilage because I don't do that sort of thing, but you better ring up my brother. And his brother was Richard Hartley, who was a, a leading silk at the defamation bar in the mid-1970s. Uh, sadly died last year, just just 91, I think he was. But anyhow, Richard very kindly took me to lunch, and at lunch he introduced me to two young barristers. One was called David Eady, and one was called Richard Rampton. And in the middle of lunch, Richard Hartley turned to Richard Rampton and said, oh, by the way, Edward will be your pupil uh, later this year. No question of interviews, no question of any form of committee. I was his pupil. And uh, six months later, after I'd passed my bar exams, off I went to Richard Rampton's room, and I have been in this very building uh, ever since. And that was 1976. It's now 2023. So uh, the apple didn't fall very far from the tree. It doesn't sound, Edward, as if uh, that process of recruitment would satisfy all modern requirements of, of diversity and equality. <laughs> you, cannot even, you can't even get your daughter into a set of chambers nowadays in that way. I was going to say, Edward, that was a, that's a, a, what can I even describe as a thoroughly traditional route into the bar from days uh, long gone by. Well, I was very lucky. Um, the advantage of the, of the defamation bar, apart from the fact that you didn't earn any money for the first few years, is that you had the advantage of being a civil practitioner and therefore being privately funded, but also you got in front of a jury. So I had the, the joy of, as you did as you were growing up in the bar, presenting cases in front of juries once you've got going, but meeting a great variety of people, uh, be they publishers or broadcasters or whoever they may be, as well as the huge array of, of, of clients, complainants, uh, and so it was, it was a huge fun. It was a small set. Sadly, it's now shut. It's shut in 2019. But it was a, a great sense of collegiality and fun. So, you, you, I mean, you, you lived through the, 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 the great days of the libel trial and, and George Carmen and those great, great uh, epic battles in the high court and days which have really gone, haven't they, with the increasing rarity of juries in, in libel cases and, and non-existent and limitation and damages and so on. So those were the great glory days. They were, and I was very, very lucky because as a, uh, in my late 20s, I appeared uh, for the Daily Mail in the Moonies libel action. I probably don't remember the Moonies, but they were... Oh, I do, I do, oh, I do. Well, yeah. I, was, I, was once, I was once approached by a Mooney in a cafe in Fleet Street. <laughs> she engaged me in what appeared to be a normal conversation and then, and then asked me whether I'd heard the message and I guessed what was coming. They might have been offering you pupillage. I was in pupillage at the time, actually. No, oh, they might have been offering you another one. But it, uh, <laughs> yeah. The great advantage of that was it, the Moonies was a, a six-month jury action in front of Mr. Justice Cummin, Jimmy Cummin, uh, uh, but I was led by A. Richard Rampton, who was the senior junior in the case, but also by Peter Rawlison, Lord Rawlison, who had been a, a solicitor general and attorney general, once under Macmillan and then under Ted Heath. So that sort of started to get me interested in law and politics as opposed to just law. Uh, but it also taught me how to manage a large case. Gave me, a, I think, a sense of proportion. And I mean, obviously, as, as Ken has said in the introduction, you've spent a lot of time recently uh, looking into the question of miscarriages of justice, and, uh, 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 and you've been very prominent in exposing the inadequacies in the system. But did you do any crime at the bar, or was this sort of an area that's come to you more through your political work? I did three jury cases, criminal jury cases. One, the first one I ever did was in Stairsbrook in front of a chap called Hugh Castle, who was... Was it Hugh Castle? Harold Castle. That was the first time I ever appeared in court in anger, so to speak. I was defending a, a shoplifter, a woman in her middle years, 
who apparently was quite a regular, and the judge said after the jury had spent about 20 minutes considering the case and coming back and convicting her, he said, before you have anything to say, Mr. Gandhi, would you go and have a look in your client's handbag? There must be a special procedure they have at St. Asbrook Crown Court. So I, I went back and she opened up her handbag and inside were 100 crisp banknotes. And he said, the judge said, what, what could you see? So I said, 100 pounds. He said, exactly, that's what I shall sign her. And he obviously knew her well. He obviously knew that she was uh, a troubled person and knew that it would be quite unjust to send her to prison. He was quite a character, he Harold was. Castle. He'd been, of course, he'd been um, a prisoner in a Japanese prisoner of war camp for many years, and it obviously marked him. He was quite eccentric, but uh, but uh, but but as you say, there was a sort of kindness at the heart of it all. I wonder whether we can get on to the Westminster Miscarriages of Justice Commission, which you chaired. Um, and which I think arose out of the all-party parliamentary group on miscarriages of justice. Could you just say a little bit about the commission uh, and its work before we come on to some of your um, findings? Because I think they have pretty direct relevance for the um, Andrew Malkinson case, which we'll also come on to in a moment. Yes, and it's rather a strange thing that the Andrew Malkinson case was before the CCLC, the Criminal Cases Review Committee, not, not long before we started our work. We, As you say, Ken, we were set up by the all-party parliamentary group on uh, miscarriages of justice, uh, and I co-chaired it with Baroness Stern, Vivian Stern. Who, wonderful, wonderful person. Exactly. And then we had uh, a forensic psychiatrist, Philip Joseph. We had a, a criminal silk, Michelle Nelson, uh, and we also had the former chief inspector of prisons. Dayman Owers. Dayman Owers. And so the, that group of people... And, and just to say, Edward, you, you also had Owen James, who was the editor-in-chief of Inside Time, which is an ex-prisoner. Of course. And I'd met him way back in the early part of the century when we'd appeared on the food programme, the BBC Radio 4 food programme, discussing with the great uh, David Ramsbottom, General Ramsbottom, the effect of nourishment on prisoners and their behaviour uh, in prison. If you underfeed or give the wrong sort of food to prisoners... Uh, they become troublesome. Whereas if you give them a healthy diet, uh, their their ability to rehabilitate and to deal with the, the horrors of being in prison is much easier. Well, the same is said to be true of school children, of course. So, so Ed, Edward, just tell us a little bit about the setting up of the commission and, and its genesis and, and, and what it was intended to achieve. I think it was the 25-year anniversary of the setting up of the CCRC which had been set up in 1997, and I think the idea was to review its work. Yes. I mean, that, that was that was a, a, a chronological coincidence, I think, and it perhaps gave us a bit of a coat hanger to, to start the thing. I think both Vivian and I were initially quite reluctant to get stuck into this because it, we thought it was going to be very time-consuming and wasn't necessarily in my area of expertise as a lawyer, but nonetheless, we, we got stuck into it, and, and the more we... Delved, in, delved into the problem, the, the more interesting it, it certainly became for me. We we suffered from a number of external difficulties. One was we could only work while and, and hold meetings in the committee rooms of Parliament when Parliament was sitting, and then we were just chuntering away, and then Boris Johnson prorogued Parliament, which took us out of commission for a bit, and then we had COVID, which meant that we had to do a lot of remote meetings, and all of that was just getting into 
its stride. So instead of taking possibly 12 months or 18 months, it, it took us really over two years to, from start to finish. Um, can, can I just refer you to, to some of the key recommendations in your report? Because it, it seems to me that they're very relevant to the focus now on the Malkinson case and, and, and what the CCRC's role was in effectively, as it's being alleged, vastly extending the length of time he spent in jail before his conviction was referred and, and finally quashed. But one of, you, you made three very important findings, it seems to me. You said that the current structure of the CCRC is, isn't good enough, it's not working properly. You need uh, a chair and commissioners with greater if you like, uh, weight and perhaps uh, the appointment of a of a, seat, a retired judge or a, a high court judge uh, and commissioners with more direct experience of the criminal justice system. And also, and this is an important point, to review the test for referring cases to the Court of Appeal because it's been said for many years that it's this predictive test where the the CCRC only refers a case if it considers that there's a real possibility that the Court of Appeal will quash the conviction. And it's been said for many years that that has created an overly cautious approach towards referring cases. So can you tell us a little bit about that, about the resources, the role of the chair, the commissioners, and then the test? And it's fair to say before you started, but the barristers who appeared before you were particularly exercised by the predictive test and the extent to which that tended to cause the commissioners to be constantly deferring to a view which they thought the Court of Appeal might eventually take. And that made them very defensive and rather defeatist in the way that they looked at the cases which they were being asked to pursue. Yeah, and, and that struck uh, that struck all of us. Um, the real possibility test does allow for a diffidence or a, a lack of confidence in the CCRC when it comes to assessing particular cases and their anticipation of what they think the, the Court of Appeal might do. So we, we propose that there should be a, a, a different test, that it should refer a case if it considers the conviction may be unsafe, the sentence may be manifestly excessive or wrong in law, or that it is in the interest of justice to make a referral. And we thought that would encourage a different and more independent mindset in the CCRC. The other problem, which Tim alluded to a moment ago, is that the, the personnel at the CCRC are much more part-time than we think they should be. I think it would be useful to have an executive chairman as opposed to a, a, a non-executive chairman. Whether you have a high court judge or a retired uh, senior legal figure is open for debate. Uh, some would say that that leads to their being too close to the people that are in the Court of Appeal. I don't know that that necessarily... I mean, the Court of Appeal doesn't mind overturning High Court judges, and the High Court judges don't fuss when they're overturned. That's what happens. But, uh, but I do think we need a, a bit more heft in the CCRC. And the commissioners, that's to say the, the decision-makers in the CCRC, are are now on, a, on daily rates and part-timers, at least that's the impression I get, whereas I think we need to get people in the office uh, communicating with each other, sifting the evidence, dealing with the problems, and, and taking a much more hands-on role rather than coming in a couple of days a week or a couple of whatever whatever their contract says. And the other thing is, it psychologically, metaphorically, I choose whichever adverb you like, 
although they have to be a, a hands-off, uh, arm's-length body from the Ministry of Justice, that leads to them being at the end of a long, long, dark corridor, and they are ignored or are easy to undermine when it comes to funding. And unless you fund an operation like this properly, it it tends to have to work on three legs rather than four. When you combine that with the real possibility test, you combine that with the, the part-time nature of many of the people who are working for it, you are creating a recipe for lack of success. I, I mean, I, th- I think you I think you sum it up very, very well. And I, and I found your report very compelling. Of course, the CCRC has been starved of funding like all the other um, elements of the criminal justice system since 2010 or thereabouts. But there are also cultural issues. I'm sure you're right. I mean, I remember when the CCRC was set up, becoming a commissioner was a was it was an accolade. It was a prestigious post, and it was something that people really wanted to do. Although it was part time, it, it wasn't paid. I'm sure on hourly rates. It was a proper position, and and the people, sort of people who went in for it, were people with distinguished records in their own rights. And I and I, and I think that that brings it, the, the question on to the you, your first point, which is that if you have people who are have records in their own right and are people of status, people of standing, they're much more likely to have confidence in their own decision-making and much more likely to perform well under a test which asks them to make a judgment. Do they think that this conviction is safe rather than asking them to defer to a view which they think the Court of Appeal might take in 12 or 18 months' time? So these problems, these issues all feed into themselves, don't they? It's a sort of whole system problem. And if you look at the problem from the other end of the telescope, if you are a lawyer who is asked to advise a a convicted person who justly feels that they are wrongly convicted, the rates of pay on the the system make it impossible for that lawyer to give a a proper assessment or to do a proper assessment. I can't remember whether the figures are now accurate still, but I think that the time we were investigating, uh, we were told by lawyers who did this sort of work that they broadly have to do it for free because after you know, if you're paid £40 an hour or £40 or whatever it was for doing it, you couldn't complete the work before you ran out of fees. And so the, you, you have a, an imperfect system inside the CCRC and you have an imperfect advisory and representation system outside the CCRC. So you're creating a perfect store. So let, let's just let's just feed all of this into into the Malkinson case, and 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 of course the CCRC is not alone in its failings in the Malkinson case, but its failings do appear to have been very stark. Can we just remind ourselves of the facts of that case? The thirty-three-year-old female victim had been walking home in Little Hulton, um, which is in the northwest of England, in the early hours of the 19th of July 2003, when she was dragged down a motorway embankment, strangled until she was unconscious and sustained uh, injuries, um, fractures, bruising. uh, And and, uh, after she'd lost consciousness, she was raped. Um, Andrew Malkinson was identified by the victim in an identity parade lineup. And and this was despite, and I think it's important to, 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 to consider how weak the case was even before the later developments, he was identified by the victim in an identity parade lineup, despite several key details, obviously not matching the description uh, that had been given of the perpetrator. For example, 
She described, the victim had described the attacker as being around three inches shorter than Malkinson. She said he had a hairless chest and no tattoos. Malkinson had a hairy chest and prominent tattoos on his forearms. She said the attacker would have a deep scratch to his face since she'd scrapped and scratched him so hard she'd broken one of her fingernails. He was seen at work the next day with no scratch to his face. He also didn't have the Bolton accent that the victim said her attacker had. And there was no DNA at all linking him uh, to the crime uh, at, at the time. Uh, two eyewitnesses um, who gave evidence had multiple convictions, including for dishonesty, which were never revealed to the jury. So he was uh, convicted by a 10 to 2 majority jury verdict and sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of six and a half years. Of course, he served a lot longer than that because he uh, always denied the offence and therefore wasn't considered uh, appropriate for release. And he was eventually released in 2020 or 2021. I'm, I'm not sure um, which. But um, it is important, as I said earlier, I think, to, to, to reflect how weak the original evidence against this man was because it only compounds um, what happened later. And, and what happened later was that by 2007, the police uh, became aware that there was some other DNA uh, on a vest that the victim had been wearing. And, and this DNA was found in a place on the vest which corresponded to a bite mark on the victim's breast. So it was a crime-specific finding. By 2009, the CPS knew that this uh, DNA uh, belonged uh, to another person. But, but instead of, um, instead of uh, notifying the defence about this, or, or instead of referring the case to the CCRC, took the decision, or the complex casework head in Manchester took the decision, that they would do nothing uh, until leave was given to appeal. It seems pretty obvious that that's material which would have assisted Mr. Malkinson in, in obtaining leave to appeal if it had been something he'd been informed about. His first appeal was dismissed in 2006. Yeah, yeah. I'm afraid this case is, the more one learns about it, the more appalling Mr. Malkinson's fate becomes. And nobody should have been placed in the position that he was of being, A, wrongly convicted, largely on the evidence of a couple of dishonest identification witnesses but some other material, weak material as well, as you've, as you've indicated, Ken. But then uh, to see his applications to have his case reviewed turned down on pretty poor bases, it would be too expensive to investigate. The material has been lost. We're not satisfied. There isn't a real possibility of his, his uh, succeeding in the appeal, and so on, and so on, and so on. The police, the CCRC, and... Uh, I'm afraid the CPS, have got questions to answer over this. And I very much hope that before very long they will provide those answers. Now, in fact, there are two uh, inquiries in train, as I understand it. One is a, a multi-agency inquiry set up by Alex Chalk, the Secretary for Justice, and that is supposedly going to look into the role of the Greater Manchester Police the CPS and the CCRC in this uh, dreadful case. But also the CCRC have appointed an independent silk who is looking into how the CCRC itself uh, dealt with it. So I suppose, in fairness, uh, we should at least await the outcome of, of those 
inquiries before reaching very firm conclusions about it all. But on the face of it, for the reasons we've just been discussing, the sequence of events is is just outrageous and deeply depressing uh, because he had two previous applications to the CCRC dismissed before this third reference resulted in the Court of Appeal quashing his conviction uh, uh, in August of this year. Well, the evidence which demonstrated that he should be released and that his uh, conviction should be overturned existed and was in the hands of state agencies, the police and apparently the CPS, from at least 2009, which is 11 or 12 years before he was released. So he did another 11 or 12 years in prison when the material that exonerated him was in the hands of the state. I mean, that's that's the the real scandal here, isn't it? That the system, whether it was the CPS or the police or the CCRC, proved incapable of ventilating this material, of illuminating this material, of presenting it to a court and of securing the just result. It just didn't happen. That's a big question for the inquiries, obviously. It is. I Clearly, there will be a number of people in prison who feel that they should not be there, but who on later analysis are, are found actually to be justly in prison. They were properly convicted. But that doesn't mean to say that there aren't going to be more Malkins, uh locked up in prison for following convictions which should never have happened. Or once they had happened, it, it became clear that they, they those convictions should be undone. The Malkinson case is a hideous metaphor for things which go wrong and keep going wrong in our criminal justice system. There are not a huge number of them, I'm sure, but there are enough to make it disturbing. You're right, of course, that many of us get letters, many, many letters all the time from people in prison who say that they are not guilty of what they uh, uh, have been convicted of. And and I'm sure it's true that the CCRC and other agencies of that sort can become inundated. It's really, the trick really is to, to have mechanisms which can identify the good strong cases. And by any yardstick, the Malkinson case should have met those metrics without too much trouble. It also illustrates a point that we highlighted in our report in the Westminster Commission on Miscarriages is, is that there should be much better retention of uh, exhibits and uh, clothing and other material which is forensically useful. I mean, in the Malkinson case, as I understand it, things got lost, things disappeared. Uh, people f- failed to look in the right place for material which would have assisted uh, the, the decision on this case. Uh, and I think po- police authorities, uh, chief constables, need to be much more vigilant in making sure that uh, material is, is, is retained just in case there is a, a, a disaster like Malkinson. Can we go back to this question about the test? Because it seems to me that the, the, the Malkinson case and others that I, I know of suggest that actually the real problem isn't so much the test. I mean, no doubt that may play part, some part in it. The real problem is the quality of the investigation and the effectiveness uh, uh, of the investigations. Because it, it always seems to me about this predictive test that unless the CCRC itself has the power to quash a conviction, which no one is suggesting it should have. It will only be the Court of Appeal Criminal Division that quashes a conviction as unsafe. Whichever body applying whichever test is going to be 
having to factor in, will the appeal succeed? And that involves some element of assessment of the likely reaction of the Court of Appeal. And by referring a case, the CTRC is effectively saying, we consider this conviction may be unsafe. And so I, I suppose I, I wonder whether the real thing that needs to be done is to, is to properly fund this body and to, and to recruit experienced investigators. I mean, investigative journalists have got the skills to dig around and find evidence uh, 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 and so on. As, as one example, I don't know how many investigative journalists are on the staff, but isn't that really what's necessary? Much more resources and a more effective investigative approach. I think the change in the test is going to set the CCRC free. And to be fair to the CCRC, if the statute were changed so that the, you know, the test, the statutory test were changed, they would go with it. They are not resisting the change. All they are waiting for is Parliament to change the test. Uh, so, uh, I, I mean, I, I have many criticisms of the CCRC, but I, I don't blame them for being stuck with a test that they, they would be happy to see change. I think there's another element that we haven't um, mentioned here, which is also important, and that's the attitude of the Court of Appeal Criminal Division. There was a period a few years ago when the Court of Appeal Criminal Division judges were very critical of the CCRC and would criticise them in fairly trenchant terms in hearings when cases have been referred to that the Court of Appeal didn't think should have been referred. And I think that's unfortunate. I think it creates an atmosphere in which the CCRC can feel somewhat intimidated, somewhat um, somewhat lacking in confidence when it's making decisions uh, whether or not to refer cases. And I, I think that the Court of Appeal should show a bit more deference, not in the sense that it should allow cases that shouldn't be allowed, uh, convictions overturned when they shouldn't be overturned, but it should accord a bit more deference to the Court, the, the CCRC as the body uh, created by statute to make these decisions and to dis make these decisions about referring cases. I don't think it's helpful for the Court of Appeal to slag off the CCRC when it refers cases that this, the Court of Appeal may happen to think shouldn't have been sent. I don't think that creates a healthy environment at all. I, I agree with you. I mean, you'll have greater experience of, of, of reading the criminal division's judgments than I, but it, it requires both greater resilience on the part of the people presenting the cases for the CCRC and the decision makers at the CCRC, the CCRC should not be frightened of the court system. Exactly. They are both statutory bodies within our legal constitution. They both have their roles to do. And it's, it's, I agree, it's not for the Court of Appeal to say, oh, if they've, appealed, if, they've, if they've referred it to us, it must be right that we should overturn the conviction. Equally, it should not be for the CCRC to say, oh, we, we better not do this in case we get another rocket. Yeah. Both have got to be tough. Both have got to be rigorous. Both have got to be well motivated and must understand their respective roles within the Constitution. Uh, and so long as they respect each other, they don't have to like each other, but they have to respect each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ken, I, I remember when you were DPP and you would sometimes appear on the Today programme or something like that, and you'd be asked about the acquittal rate. And y your view always was that you didn't really worry about the acquittal rate. And if the conviction rate was incredibly high... Um, th th that suggested that you weren't prosecuting enough cases yeah, because yeah. the mere fact that there's a, there are acquittals. And I, I, I think it chimes with what Edward was just saying, that the Court of Appeal uh, or, the, or the CCRC should have the same attitude, that at the moment, actually, the number of cases which they refer which result in the convictions being quashed is pretty high. 
and again, by priority of reasoning, you know, maybe they, they should be referring more cases and accept that the Court of Appeal may differ with them, but they're both doing this, their own job. I mean, you can, you, you, I mean, you can increase the conviction rate any time you like. You just take the safer cases, the, the more winnable cases, and don't take the more adventurous cases. And it's the same with the, the CCRC. I mean, the, 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 those outcome figures can be adjusted by what you put in in the first place. But I, I, I mean, my, my point really is I just don't think it's helpful for the Court of Appeal publicly to lacerate the Criminal Cases Review Commission. Um, and as Edward says, th these bodies should respect each other. They have to be tough within their own fields. But I think... I think uh, some of the some of the comments that have been made in the past by the Court of Appeal have not been helpful, have not really been designed to engender a spirit of confidence in the Criminal Cases Review Commission, which is what we want the Criminal Cases Review Commission to have. It has to be self-confident, uh, it has to be competent, uh, and it has to be effective. One of the other one of the one, one other point I know Tim wanted to touch on, and I I did too, is this this uh, this controversy that arose around the time of the Malkinson case about uh, people who had been subject to miscarriages of justice and who were um, in line for compensation having amounts for board and lodgings in prison deducted from that compensation. In other words, we're going to pay you a million pounds, but we're going to deduct what it's cost to keep you in prison. I think that was a bit of a misunderstanding. What what was actually happening was that that what was potentially being deducted, although I think it rarely was, was uh, an amount to represent the living expenses that you would have had if you'd been out of prison uh, during those years. I, I must say, I, th I think that's also pretty unattractive. And I think what was more unattractive and what passed with less notice was the change which the well-remembered Chris Grayling brought in as Justice Secretary, when in, in, in a reform to the Criminal Justice Act 2014, section 133, he introduced a new test for the payment of compensation to people who'd won their cases in the Court of Appeal, that over and above the fact that their case had been overturned in the Court of Appeal, they had to demonstrate, quote, a new or newly discovered fact showing beyond reasonable doubt that they did not commit the offence, which was a deliberate new hurdle placed in, 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 in front of people who had been released by the Court of Appeal after long terms of imprisonment before they could win compensation. Of course, the fact of, a, of a, a, an overturned conviction is not a demonstration beyond reasonable doubt that you didn't commit an offence. So this was a, seems to be a, an unreasonable and oppressive additional hurdle being placed uh, upon people. And it's why so little compensation has been paid out since that time for people who've suffered miscarriages of justice, which I'm sure was Mr. Grayling's intention. Yes, and there was a, a Lady Justice Hallett who was presiding in the Neelam and uh, Hallam Court of Appeal quite properly pointed out there's a difference between being not guilty and innocent. I've read under our system, you're either, you're either guilty or not guilty. The court doesn't say you are innocent. Uh, and I suppose that was a way of justifying the amendment to the to section 133 of the of the uh, 88 Act. But it, uh, as Ken has pointed out, that's a thoroughly unattractive addendum to the to the law. If you have been acquitted, or shall we say, declared by the Court of Appeal not to have been guilty of the offence for which you were convicted, well, under our system, it doesn't really much make much difference. It seems to me. You're either not guilty or you're innocent. I think I can elide the two terms. Can, can I? I mean, let me come back with my bitter experience of having argued the Andrew Adams case. 
in the Supreme Court. Um, the, 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 the difficulty is this, that Section 133 compensation is the UK's um, statutory enactment of Article 14.6 of the ICCPR, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Um, and th that provision does not provide for everyone who ends up being acquitted to get compensation. And that provision itself, uh, see the explanatory memorandum to the ICCPR, puts forward on the face of it a, a restrictive basis for getting compensation. Uh, and the other point is that, for example, you don't get compensation at all if you're acquitted, having spent years in prison, in your first appeal. It's only an out-of-time appeal or a CCRC reference which ever gives rise to a compensation entitlement at all. So there are many anomalies in the system. But Ken is quite right. The change, uh, it wasn't so much a new test. What they did is in the 2014 amendment is to narrow the criteria for getting compensation to what was called Category 1 cases in the Adams case. In Adams, they put forward four categories of potential basis for compensation. Category 1, cases where the fresh evidence shows clearly that the defendant is innocent of the crime of which he was convicted. Category 2, cases where the fresh evidence so undermines the evidence against the defendant that no conviction could possibly be based upon it. Category 3, cases where the fresh evidence renders the conviction unsafe in that had it been available at the time of the trial, a reasonable jury might or might not have convicted the defendant. And 4, cases where something has gone seriously wrong in the investigation of the offence or the conduct of the trial, resulting in the conviction of someone who should not have been convicted. Now, the majority in the Adams case uh, held that the term miscarriage of justice covered all cases falling within category two, as well as one, but that three and four were never to be categorised as a miscarriage of justice. And what they did in 2014 was to knock out Category 2 cases, which were the ones where the fresh evidence so undermines the evidence against the defendant that no conviction could possibly be based upon it, leaving only Category 1. You've got to prove your innocence. The, the political dilemma, I mean, every time this sort of subject is, is discussed in part, the political dilemma is we should not be allowing the Treasury to pay out huge sums of taxpayers' money to people who were, in quotes, guilty, but we couldn't quite prove it, uh, or uh, to people who get off on it, on what they call a technicality. Let's say you have to serve the summons on a Monday, and it was served on a Sunday, and on that basis, you are your, your appeal succeeds. Now, you may well have gone 50 miles an hour and 30, uh, but everyone knows it. You, you've, you've managed, you'd be jolly lucky and you've got away with it. That I can understand, but I think what we're looking at here in the black letter law in section 133 as it now is, is something which is produces quite dreadful results in uh, occasional cases. And I think we need to be smart enough and quick enough and pragmatic enough to make sure that people who are unjustly convicted on the four bases that you've mentioned uh, should be properly compensated. It's bad enough if you if you have been on remand pre-trial, let's say for a year, and then you're acquitted, you just have to go and whistle. And that's part of the system. I don't think we should pile further and further problems onto the innocent. 
after having spent long, long years in prison. As you probably know, Edward, um, the, the cases of, of Nealon, Victor Nealon and Hallam were recently argued before the Grand Chamber of the European Court of Human Rights a couple of months ago. And that is the only hope of change because it's uh, the, the point about the Hallam and Nealon case here before the Supreme Court. They refused to depart from the Adams test. And they also uh, found that uh, the current test under domestic law, is not incompatible with the presumption of innocence guaranteed by Article 6.2. And that's the issue now before Strasbourg. And let me just read you what Lord Wilson had to say about what he described as the dreadful state of the European law. He said, we afford profound respect to the decisions <clears throat> of the European Court of Human Rights and recognise its unparalleled achievements in raising the standards according to which member states of the Council of Europe, undoubtedly including the UK, must treat their people. I am, however, persuaded that in its rulings upon the extent of the operation of Article 6.2 of the Convention, the East European Court of Human Rights has step by step allowed its analysis to be swept into hopeless and probably irretrievable confusion, an analogy is to a boat which, once severed from its moorings, floats out to sea and is tossed helplessly this way and that. And um, his view very firmly was that the current test was incompatible with Article 6.2. But we have to await what Strasbourg says. Well, I've, I must say that's a very eloquent and elegant quote. And, and I'm, he's absolutely right. I mean, it just seems not to pass the smell test that someone who's served 15, 20 years in prison uh, following a conviction which the Court of Appeal later declares should never have taken place can't obtain compensation unless he or she can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they are actually innocent and didn't commit the offence. I mean, that's a... It, in most criminal cases, that's an enormous burden which few people would ever be in a position to surmount. And I'm I'm would be surprised if if that wasn't part of um, Mr. Grayling's calculation when this amendment to the eighty eight Act was made in two thousand and fourteen. But uh, Edward, it's been a fascinating conversation. Um, I, I just want to finish since we're on the subject of boats with a quote from you from a Times article on the uh, a asylum issue. Um, which I regard as a, if I may say so, a rare blast of sanity and good sense emanating from the conservative side on this. You said, we, you said, um, and I don't mean to be offensive to your colleagues, many of whom are friends of mine, but uh, I, I do think that you get this exactly right. You say, we will always want to accept asylum seekers. That's the starting point, isn't it? You say, we will always want to accept asylum seekers. We will not halt all illegal immigration, no matter how harsh our laws. So rather than bashing our heads against the wall of impracticality and shouting at our neighbours, I look to this Prime Minister to start an era of practical UK-European cooperation that will reduce the emotional inflammation and stop the boats. Amen to that, Edward. Um, thank you very much um, for joining us. It's been uh, really uh, a pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's been uh, a great joy to natter with you. And, and and thank you from from me too, Edward. Many thanks. You've been listening to Double Jeopardy, the Law and Politics podcast with Ken McDonald and with me, Tim Owen. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, pass it on, spread the word. Uh, that way we'll uh, boost our audience. And of course, if you want to give us a review, hopefully a good review, 
uh, don't feel constrained. Uh, give us a five-star review and that will help other people to find us. And have a look at the back catalogue. We've got a stellar array of guests from Professor Kathleen Stock to Baroness Hale, Dominic Grieve, Diana Rose, Edward Fitzgerald, uh, Lord Panic, uh, and many, many others. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Our editor is Billy Lawrence and our social media advisor is Jess Jones. And we'll see you soon.